we started talking about Joseph last week, and and, and I uh, when I went back and I I put aside the what I've always been told and what I've always been taught about Joseph, and I started to look at him. I uh, I hope I didn't offend anybody when I called him a snot nosed punk, but that that's the the lens I'm viewing him through is the older brothers looking at him. And and because of that, I kind of strip away this pedestal that we'd set Joseph on because nowhere in the scripture when it talks about Joseph having these dreams, did God say, tell them to your brothers? Nowhere did it say, tell them to your father and your mother. This is just Joseph... It, it, being real, this is Joseph in youthful arrogance speaking out. And if you don't have one of those moments in your past, some of you have a lot of them coming in your future, uh, you're going to see yourself in that moment where you kind of let your mouth get ahead of your brain. And I, I love that God allows us to see that in Joseph. And we're going to get to see Joseph grow and mature a little bit today and and it's something where I have no doubt that Joseph had a good baseline of faith and, and I think he had that because he grew up in a family that had a good baseline of faith and they're being told the stories over and over it's being passed down something we don't see because it's going on behind the scenes is that Abraham's family is passing down the stories of their family until eventually we're going to get it all written down here in Genesis by Moses. And a lot of people struggle with the fact that this was just an oral history until Moses writes it down. But the beauty of that is the generation before is teaching the current generation who will teach the generation after them. And we don't get that told to us because we're not in that culture where that still happens. And something that I've tried to incorporate into our family is that we tell stories as far back in the family as we can. We invite our parents to tell those stories so that they're being passed into the next generation. If, if you talk to a family in Israel today, they can take you through story after story and they'll trace their family line back to their tribe, which ultimately takes them back to Abraham. They'll trace it all the way back because they know. And there's very few people in America that can take their generations back much farther than immigration in the United States. That's not very many generations. It's really not. If you put it up against Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So having said all that freebie, you know, Joseph, I'm going to be fair to Joseph. Joseph has a good baseline of faith. He's been told how God was faithful to Abraham. He's been told how God was faithful to Isaac. And he has seen with his own eyes how God was faithful to Jacob. 
and picking up where we left off. He got his coat of many colors because he's dad's favorite. Don't forget that. He's dad's favorite because every time dad looks at him, dad fondly remembers his favorite wife. And that's going to come into play here in a little bit. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Bells should be going off if you paid attention last week. Where were they trying to get away from? Shechem. And these geniuses, and I'm going to be hard on his brothers too, because they're, they're a special kind of dumb. But they take the flocks right back where they caused all the trouble. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? And I can picture, I can picture Israel or Jacob saying that, just shaking his head. I pity these fools. We just got out of there, and they're taking the flocks back there. You know, if we really want to get Jewish, we say, Oy vey! And come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Which in the Hebrew we've ran into many times. Here I am is Hanani, which is a call to attention. Your servant is here to do whatever you say. And... And of course, Joseph is eager to do this because what has he already proven himself to be? He's a snitch. They're in the place they shouldn't be. This is going to be easy. All I got to do is go find them and then come back and tell that, yep, they're where they shouldn't be. It's the easiest job I've ever had. And he says, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. But this is where I, I think Joseph is just like any other teenage boy. Okay, he gets sent on the job. He shows up. They're not where they're supposed to be. What do I do now? Anybody worked with a teenager these days? If you don't tell them what to do next, they don't always process and figure out the next thing to do. Genesis 37, 15, a man found him wandering in the fields. And that word wandering in the Hebrew is stumbling about. And it's also associated at times with drunkenness. Now, I'm not saying Joseph was drunk. I'm just saying might have been a clumsy, goofy kid who can't figure out what to do next. Because think about how Joseph has always been kept close to dad. He's been the homebody. He's not smart enough to look at the ground and see tracks going that way. I'm going to follow the tracks because that's where the herd went. Joseph's not a shepherd. This is something that people don't realize. Joseph's not a shepherd. He's sent to check on his brothers. He's an overseer. And the, the part that we don't understand is if you're not the shepherd in a family full of shepherds and you're the overseer, you're already put in an authoritarian position. And how many people like the authority figure? How many, of them, how many of you like a supervisor that's younger than you telling you how to do a job you've been doing for many, many years? Okay, this will help us relate a little bit to Joseph's brothers. They don't like this kid, but what's even better is he's not qualified to be a supervisor. He can't find the flock. He's stumbling around, wandering around near Shechem, and a man comes up to him and says, What are you seeking? And if I were going to pull something from the text for us, 
make sure, make very, very sure, church, that if you're if you're looking for the sin in other people's lives, make sure you're not lost and stumbling about in your own failures and not owning them. It's okay to call sin, sin. I have no problem with that. I will never say that sin is not sin. I will never go contrary to the Word of God from this pulpit. But I'm not going to use somebody else's sin to beat on them and to drive them away from the Good Shepherd. And that happens a lot more in the church world today than it ever has. Because we're more about telling people what we're against than what we're for. And that is a a referendum on the Christian church in America at large. Not picking on anyone here, but if it feels like you got hit, the hit dog always yelped. So pray about it and, and let God lead you to what are you seeking? In the conversation with somebody, are you seeking to show them Jesus or to tell them about Jesus? That's a hard difference. If you're seeking to show them Jesus, you're going to love them unconditionally and you're going to let God be the one that transforms them rather than you try to knock the edges off. Ouch. Okay, this is getting way tough. We're going to move on. I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And this is not Dothan in Atlanta, near Atlanta, Georgia. This is Dothan in Israel, which is northern Israel, which is way far away from home. But I had to do some digging. Dothan means two wells. And that, that's, that's something I could not escape from in preparing for this message, that there are two wells. And I, and I want you to understand that we're going to come back to that pretty heavily when we, start, when, we, when we get into lessons from the desert. But there's two wells. And... It's very, to put it very simply, you're either drawing from your own well or you're drawing from the well that never runs dry, and that's Jesus Christ. And he goes to Dothan, and they saw him from afar, and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. Have you ever done that with your siblings? I'm going to kill you. I mean... Yeah, it comes out of every kid's mouth when they get mad at their siblings. I'm going to kill you. None of us really mean it. These guys did. I mean, they absolutely hated Joseph. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Now, now the thing that we lose track of because we don't understand the geography and the landscape of the region, the pits is also the term for wells. Okay, In this part of the country, they dug cisterns or pits or wells, depending on how you want to identify them. And it was for the, the sake of capturing rainfall in the rainy season and to have a place to water the flocks when the rain stopped coming. 
and we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. Ouch. <laughs> That's just kind of rough. The, these guys aren't very smart and they're kind of rough. Also a trend I see amongst people. A lot of times the roughest people are not necessarily the smartest crowd. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued them out of their hands. Remember we talked about how Reuben made that big mistake? Reuben is going to spend the rest of his life looking for that moment to make up for that big mistake where he jumped out ahead of the plan and, and kind of had a very mild coup d'etat. And uh, he said, let's not take his life. Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And his whole plan is that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. Okay, this is really the background of the plan is we'll throw him in this pit, don't do anything to him, and then Reuben's going to sneak back later and, and be the big hero so that maybe dad will get over that big mistake. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the, a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Okay, there's a whole lot of stuff right here that as I was studying that if you think about what their robe meant in those days, it was a symbol of their identity. The first thing his brothers took away from him was his identity. They stripped it off of him, and then they threw him into a pit. But they were selective about what pit they threw him into. They didn't throw him into a pit that still had water in it because this region of the world is not a lush, beautiful garden. It is a place where if you don't have water, you're not going to make it very long. And water in the scripture is always symbolic of the Spirit of God and the presence of God and the nourishing, life-sustaining power that God has. Is it, a, is it a coincidence he gets thrown into a pit with no water? You want to talk about getting humbled out in a hurry because God never told him to tell his brothers the dream. And, and he's still walking around in his own arrogance of, I'm a dreamer. God gave me this dream. You're going to bow down to me. Look at this. Mom and dad gave me this robe, or dad gave me this robe of many colors that if dad gives you a special robe, it's a place of authority in the family. And guess what? Now he's stripped down to who he actually is, and he's in a pit with nothing to sustain him. We always have this the saying in our household of discipline yourself or someone else will. Joseph got disciplined that day. Now, his brothers, they're a special kind of crazy. <laughs> they, they threw him in this pit where there's a good chance he could just die in the pit. And what do they do? They sit down and eat. They sat down and eat. And looking up, which when I first read that today, this is a horrible, this is my cracked sense of humor God gave me. The, this whole section of scripture in my version of the Bible would be titled, You're Not Yourself When You're Hungry. 
all this stuff they did to Joseph, they did while they were hungry, they sat down and eat, and suddenly, hey, a little more rational thought develops. We can't kill him, but we can get rid of him. They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels were bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. And, and don't try and read way too much into that. Uh, people try and make Joseph an archetype of Jesus, and I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, because Jesus was never arrogant. Never was. Jesus was always a servant looking out for the betterment of his brothers, not looking to trick them. Anyways, we, we, you can go on down that path if you want. Yeah, yes, there's similarities about Joseph being the one deliverance and rescue would come through, but not really because he's going to lead the whole nation into slavery. Big hand gestures here. Okay, anyway. They, they're loaded down with stuff to go trade in Egypt. And Judah says to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not our hand be upon him. We're going to get rid of him and we're not going to kill him. So we kind of come out innocent and we get paid for it. For he is our brother in our own flesh and his brothers listen to him. That This is going to set up the trend where Judah doesn't always do the right things. But he deep down has the right motive because Judah did not want to kill his brother. And the, the next chapter I'll, I'll cover in a podcast, Judah will continue that trend, but Judah is also going to be the one who, the majority of the time when push comes to shove, he's going to get it right. Which... course he has to be tricked into it in the next chapter but we'll go on for he is our brother in our own flesh the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt parents you're not the only ones that wonder sometimes how your kids come into money there's times I'm like where did where did you get that money they don't have a real good reason for it. They didn't sell their brother into slavery to Egypt, but who knows how they found this money? Okay, I'm, I'm just thinking 20 shekels of silver. That's a lot of money for a teenage kid, or in this case, young 20-somethings, maybe the oldest was 30, to just suddenly have, because you're not getting paid out there taking care of sheep. How did you come home with 20 shekels of silver? When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Man, Reuben can't catch a break. That's all right. He kind of deserves it. But anyway, uh, we'll move on. They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. And Joseph, without doubt, torn to pieces. The, the crazy thing that I, I've slept on a lot on that is his brothers never had to directly lie to their father. They brought the robe and they asked him to identify it. Is this your son's robe? 
And then Jacob jumped to conclusions. Because Jacob's always been a, a thinker, a guy who sees stuff ahead of time. And, and he, he says he's been torn to pieces by an animal. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned, mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And meantime, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pyro, the captain of the guard. The, this is going to tie back into the Father's Day message. But I... I don't know how Jacob didn't kill all of his sons later because they let him grieve. They let him grieve over someone who wasn't dead. And not just a little bit of grief because in that day you lost children all the time. And Joseph or Jacob had already lost his favorite wife and he'd been through a process of grieving, but he still had connection to her through his two sons. And now his favorite son in his eyes is dead. And he says, I am going to mourn him until the very day that I die. We, we struggle sometimes with grief because we try and put a, a time stamp on when people should get over grieving. I think Jacob got it right. I'm going to mourn that loss in my life until the day that I die. And can, can you imagine being one of those other 10 boys? How do you deal with it? How, how do you walk through the house every day hearing your father weep over the person you hated so much that you were willing to kill him if reason hadn't won the day? But I, I can't imagine how this story plays out for Jacob and the, the impact that it will have on his life. But we get introduced to uh, Potiphar, and, and it lists him out as a captain of the guard. And I'd slept over that phrase over and over and over. The captain of the guard. The captain of the guard. Okay? So keep that phrase in your head. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, do you think anywhere along the way when he was in the pit, Joseph saw himself as a successful man? Do you think when he was being sold as a slave, he saw himself as a successful man. Even when he worked as a slave, do you think he saw himself that way? This is where we start to see the maturity. It's not Joseph considered himself a successful man. This is the testimony of Potiphar. He's a successful man. His master saw the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. 
He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field, and he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Before we jump on that last phrase, had, he didn't have to worry about anything except what he's going to eat that day. How many of you want that job? Sign me up where there is just wealth and influence building through my household. And all I really have to worry about is, hmm, am I going to have pancakes or waffles? Am I going to have steak or steak? Or maybe steak? I mean, that, that, that's how that would go. I'm just telling you. If I ever got to Potiphar level wealthy, and Potiphar is ridiculously wealthy. Okay? You don't get to be called the captain of the guard in the Egyptian army without having a lot of money. Which makes me wonder if he was ugly. Okay? You'll see why here in a minute. But Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. See, that arrogance is still there. Still there just a little bit. He said, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept anything back from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, now this again is where I, I used to put Joseph on that high pedestal because he was resisting the, the efforts of this desperate housewife. And I'll just tell you that if, if she was Potiphar's wife and Potiphar is like stupid wealthy, in, in Egypt, stupid wealthy guys don't marry ugly women. Guys, okay? she's probably significantly younger than Potiphar and she is not an ugly woman. Which, knowing those two things, I thought, Joseph, you are a you're a good godly man, but what does he list out as his excuses not to do it? He lists out all the stuff that Potiphar has given him. And then finally at the end says, and sin against God. I'm not doing this to downplay Joseph. I'm doing it so that maybe we start to step up to that level and realize we're not much different. How many times do we list out all these things and then invite God and being righteous into the equation instead of the other way around where I'm not going to do any of that because it's, it's against what God wants for me. And it would be bad in the eyes of my boss. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, not only... Is she a desperate housewife? She's a nagging housewife. Day after day, and he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. 
But one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were in the house. This should set off alarms. But again, what did we say last chapter? He's wandering around lost because maybe he's not always the brightest bulb in the box. Well, guess what? Everybody in the house is not there except her. That's sketchy. That's when he ought to just run then. Not wait for the cougar to pounce. But she caught him by his garment. I love calling her a desperate house. I like calling her a bunch of names because she's Egyptian. And, I mean, she is everything that TV drama wants in a, in a woman. She's grabbing him, being assertive, trying to force him to do what she wants. And homeboy just straight up kicks his jacket off and runs. He strips off again his identity. I mean, we could preach this whole sermon from the, from the perspective of identity, but he threw off something that would identify him and left it in the one place he never wanted to be. And he fled and he got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left the garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. I, I slept on that, where she just kept it. She just put it right here. So when, when Potiphar walks in the door, the first thing he sees is his beautiful wife and the robe of his most trusted servant. Look at what this scoundrel has done. The Hebrew servant you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. As soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoken to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Now I want us to see something really quickly that Potiphar must have been older because while he was deeply angered, he also, and by his position and authority, he could have killed Joseph because he was a slave. He's just property. He could have killed him instantly. But I think Potiphar was wise enough to know what his wife was. And to know that there was probably two sides to this story. So, Pot so Joseph's master took and put him into the prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sound like a very familiar story. Well, guess what? It's a familiar story that has a very familiar cast because th this is where it gets interesting uh, because where was that prison? 
that prison is in Potiphar's house because Potiphar is the captain of the guard. Thereby, Potiphar is in direct supervising role of the prison. So the keeper of the prison is none other than Potiphar. Just a little nugget that jumped out. I mean, it worked in my house, it works in my prison. And sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard, who we know is Potiphar. And in the prison where Joseph was confined. I never made that full connection until this morning that Joseph was never really getting kicked out of Potiphar's sphere of influence until God takes him out of there. The captain of the guard, hmm, it keeps bringing him in, appointed Joseph to be with them. And he attended to them and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. Very, very quick pause and a share here of sometimes we, we're always desperate to, for God to give us dreams. But you'd be amazed how much you'll learn if you'll let the dream God's given other people speak into your life and inspire you. And they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, and this is how much he was invested in these guys. When he came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? What, what's, what's wrong? What's bothering you? And, and they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Finally, our boy is showing some maturity. The first thing out of his mouth is, don't the interpretations of a dream belong to God? Please tell your dreams to me. When's the last time you asked somebody to tell you their dreams? That's invested into the life of somebody when you're close enough they can tell you their dreams. And, and I'll, I'll run this really quickly. The, they both had a dream that you know, had multiple parts. The, the, the cupbearer had a dream with a vine and it had three branches. As soon as, it's, as soon as it budded, it shot forth with big old grapes. And he took the grapes and he pressed them into the cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And, and Joseph tells him that that's the dream that says in three days, you're going to be restored to your position. And the baker has the same dream where he bakes these 
three loaves of bread and the birds descend on the baskets of bread that he had stacked up on his head and they start to eat it. And, and Joseph tells him the, the interpretation of this is, this is what it is, buddy, is that you're, you're going to be delivered out of the prison and you're going to be executed and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Always fun to be the guy who gives good news, right? And, and he tells the cupbearer, he says, I, he said, I didn't do this for my own good, but I want you to remember me when you're with Pharaoh because Pharaoh's the only person in Egypt that could deliver him out of the hands of Potiphar, which again is kind of a step back. He took that step forward where only God can interpret dreams. And then he stepped right back into the real world and said, but Potiphar was never going to let me go. Only Pharaoh can get me out of this mess. There's a lot of people that don't want to hear that. They're going to say, no, Joseph believed God was going to. No, he outright says it. Remember me when you're with Pharaoh. Remember me when you're with Pharaoh. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast. Okay, what a weird deal to do on your birthday. Pardon one and execute another. Anyway. Sounds like Roman. But, uh, and he lifted up the head of the cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And this is kind of a downer of a place to end a message, but a powerful, powerful reminder to us. If you're putting your hope in people, they will let you down. Joseph's hope was that the cupbearer would go and speak to Pharaoh and he would be delivered out of prison. I don't know what his plan was beyond that. We're never told that he had a plan, which at this point he's in his 20s roughly most 20 year olds don't have a good plan we'll just be fair and he's putting his hope somewhere else and and we don't ever get to hear how joseph dealt with the the feeling of being forgotten and and i think it comes back to that baseline of faith where, yes, I've been forgotten. But look at the experience Joseph already had. He had time in the pit. And a friend of mine has what he calls the pit. It's a, a place of intentional transformation. Where God put Joseph through his brothers in the pit to get rid of the identity of the favorite son. To get rid of the identity that, that was going to hold him back because he had to become a servant before he was ever going to be a leader. And he spent time being a servant and he did all the right things. And where did he end up? In prison. And in prison he does all the right things. And when push comes to shove, the person that should remember and, and put in a word for him forgets him. I'm telling you, if you haven't had those moments in life, hold on. Because uh, the story's not over. We're going to leave him in prison this morning. But 
even in prison, God has a plan. And, and that plan is, is the plan of a good father.